The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. You're listening to Just Some Podcasts, and here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled, fast-paced, and exciting episode of Just Some Podcasts for Advanced Practitioners. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Hey, Tom, how's your week been, bud? Um, you know, I don't know. It's been all right. Mostly the dumb thoughts that clog my brain on a daily basis, uh, like... <laughs> Do I prefer jambalaya versus gumbo? And, you know, shit like that is pretty much what's been on my mind. Nothing exciting. What about you? Well, I'm still recovering from my weekend. I got the opportunity to play the Grinch and for a local children's museum and then for a charity that was doing, that was collecting some toys, toys for Todd's. And so I was the Grinch for several hours and breathing through a latex mask for several hours is not fun. I heard I sent Tom a picture of what I looked like afterwards. Yeah, he looked like a uh, prisoner of war, to be <laughs> frank. Or what? Maybe not a prisoner of war. I mean, that's more like he volunteered to be waterboarded at least once for a couple minutes. I mean, it was pretty interesting. But see, that's the difference between me and Ben. He's out doing stuff for a great organizations like Toys for Tots, and I'm sitting around on my fat ass and a lazy boy going, would I prefer... A meal with rice or not rice? Well, and I got to get the fake rice now because I'm I'm switching over to a ketogenic diet. So then I I spent another thirty minutes googling uh, rice cauliflower or cauliflower rice. So you know that is the high expectations in the Tom household. Yeah, see, he he really let you guys into what uh, a normal day for Tom looks like right there. That's kind of scary, and those are the messages that I generally get or. Just randomness like that. But I think jambalaya is better than gumbo, but hey, that's just me. Well, and I think that's the way I'm going. So if anybody has some awesome low-carb advice on jambalaya or gumbo, please feel free to let me know. Because I have never really had – I've had them in general. I've never had like authentic made jambalaya or gumbo that I am aware of. And so trying to figure out what the best recipe is is kind of like – it's kind of annoying. Like I'm like – well, do I want this or do I want that? I don't know because I've never had either. So, yeah, you know, that's the day in my life. But to be fair to the listeners, this is completely the PG-rated version of, of most of the True, issues yeah. that deal deal in my life. So, But, you know, that's pretty much how my week's been. I would just say I think we probably got some listeners down in, like, Louisiana area, uh, you know, Mississippi area. So I bet you that we can get you a recipe for some good jambalaya. Well, we might have listeners in Mississippi, but considering it's Mississippi, can they write? I mean, I know one person in particular, it still astounds me that he is a functioning person, let alone a nurse practitioner. So, I mean... James, we're talking about you. Yes, yeah. He he should know. I mean, Mr. One Word Excitement right there. Still better than Oklahoma, though. I mean, figure that out. So, 
Have you ever been to Mississippi, by the way, since we brought that up for a minute? I drove through when I went to New Orleans last year for a DNP conference, and uh, we drove through Mississippi, but not, we didn't stay long. Well, I lived in Alabama for several years, and I had the unfortunate mispleasure or displeasure, however you want to say that one, of visiting the great state of Mississippi. <laughs> They're still fighting the Civil War there in their heads, so figure that out. I mean, wowzer. That is... woo. That is a place that when you come into town, don't tell them you're lost. Just keep going. Like, they know you're not from there. They know you don't know where you're going. Just keep moving. But they have social media down there, Tom. Um, No. People from other states that have moved there generally are the ones that have the social media. That's that's how I'm looking at it. So, yeah, just saying. But, yeah, another week in the, uh, the life of Tom. So, hey, speaking of social media, Ben. What? You know what. Well, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. We are on the web, www.justsomepodcast.com. Shoot us an email. Shoot Tom that jambalaya recipe email. Admin at justsomepodcast.com. Tom, how else can I help the show? Well, you can help us out by using all those links or uh, social media sites and spreading the fun and excitement to your friends, dropping some knowledge bombs on them. You can also help out the show by using the Amazon affiliate link on our website. It's free, it's fast, and it helps out a group of NPs that are trying to build a podcast and bring the NP love to everybody else. So, well, on PAs, I keep forgetting about the PAs, but it's for everybody. So use that affiliate link and help out the show and we'll just keep trying to get better every day. And I have seen quite a bit of increased activity on the uh, affiliate link. So we do greatly appreciate that. I'm just wondering who bought 12 cases of D cell batteries. I'm just saying, I think that's on there. Even if it is, um, we thank you for using our link to purchase those big-ass batteries. <laughs> On that note, Tom, I think it's probably time for us to get into stories that you may have missed, and we're going to give you a double shot again this week. So, Tom, do you want to go ahead and lead us off? Yeah, let's go ahead and start off with this winner. A nurse anesthetist at Ohio State University has... Is that the Ohio State University? You're goddamn right it is. The Ohio State University. Just making sure. I'm sure they're really happy about all the press for this right now. But she, it was a she, sorry, I'm not going to say her name, but a nurse anesthetist formerly of the Ohio State University was sentenced uh, this week to two years in prison for theft related to, oh, related to she faked having cancer. Ooh, that's not good. No, it's not good. So not only did she have to pay back Ohio State for time, but she also had to reimburse people that made gifts to her, etc. And, you know, it, it was already bad enough. Like, that's already, like, heinous within itself, right? But then you read some more of the story, and, like, another person's family member had passed away of metastatic lung cancers, which is what she was claiming to have. And she was like, oh, we had the same doctors. I can't believe what happened. Or she told another person whose family member passed away from a totally unrelated incident that she had also died 
for a minute while under treatment and hadn't seen them in the afterlife. And all these horrible stories. Like, damn, you are already a shit person to start with, but then you laid that on him. And so I, I don't think two years is enough, but at the same time, you know, prison overcrowding. Not that I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner or anything by that means. That almost sounds like sociopathic type behavior. I mean, to to facilitate a lie that big and to live it to that point almost sounds like a sociopath. Yeah, I that would actually be a really interesting thing to find out some kind of condition that correlates to this. I, I bullshit itis, fuck that lady. I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of different words than than the nice words you're using. I, I just, you know, like I said, it, it it's it's bad enough to fake the illness and lie to your your employer, but when you're telling your friends, yeah, no, I, yeah. you show up to a funeral with a walker. That was another recount. Is she showed up to somebody else's funeral with a walker, and people were helping her, and were like, "Oh my god, you're so brave!" And then you find out, nah, she was lying to everybody. I mean, uh, every time you think humanity can't get low enough. Well, thank you, lady. You you took us down another notch. So, well, I think my story is a little bit. Yeah, we're we're, we're gonna bring us back up on the uptone here. So, there was a article published in the. Let me find it. By the way, if anybody did want to read more about my story, the Columbus Dispatch is where you can find it. So, where you can find it on our website www.justonpodcast.com is where we'll link that to. Boing. All right, so our second story. From the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health. And Tom, have you ever walked through your house late at night and you you have a man child? Um, or, well, no, you are a man. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, you ever walked through the house late at night and stuff on a damn Lego? Uh, more than once. And it just, yeah. So the story that we're talking about is actually the, the and I love the title of this. Everything is awesome. Don't forget the Lego. So what this was was six pediatric healthcare professionals were recruited to swallow a Lego head just to see how long it would take it to pass. Now, I think they were kind of having some tongue-in-cheek, so to speak, fun with this. The uh, pre-ingestion bowel habit was standardized by the stool hardness and transit score. For those keeping score, that is the SHAT score. And then the primary outcome was found was the found and retrieved time score the fart score so the fart score was 1.71 days that it took to pass the lego head from consumption through retrieval shall we say well first my, my first question to you first is how did you equate this with stepping on a lego it's second know. of all <laughs> I was like, how the hell did he equate this with stepping on one? I've never stepped on one and then accidentally shit it out. So Maybe there's that. <laughs> Maybe I should. 1.71 days. Um, oh, God. Yeah, could you imagine if it was like a corner piece? Boy, oh. you're going to have a rough morning after coffee the next day. Um, yeah, at least the head was, you know, round. Exactly. I. And God bless Australians. I know we've been downloaded and played in Australia. If you are an Aussie and you're listening to us, you crazy sons of bitches are amazing, and I love you. And see, you're doing stuff like this. This is advancing medical procedures and, and education right here. It is. And basically what they were trying to do was uh, 
give parents reassurance that when children swallow objects like Legos or like other things that it's generally likely to pass in about one to three days without any complications. Yes. You do not need to go and see anybody about a Lego head. And you don't need to dig through the poop either. It, it, it generally will pass. Yeah. Don't do that. That's but you know, Tom, you did mention that we are played in Australia. And so I do, before we get into our main topic, I do want to kind of give a shout out to all the countries that we are downloaded and played in, which just amazes me to hear this. So I'm going to rattle this off for you, Tom. You ready? Late on me. Obviously the U.S. We've also been downloaded or played in Canada, Mexico, the U.K., Nepal, Sweden, Australia, Japan, Ireland, Venezuela, India, South Africa, Vietnam, and Finland. First of all, um, that's amazing. Can't, I, it still kind of shocks me because when I think of the people that are listening to us in America, I'm like, wow, I can't believe we have the listeners that we have here already. But then when you start listening off and you're saying, hey, did you know we have people listening to us in Ireland? And I'm like, holy fuck, I didn't. But what I do know is that if anybody from Ireland is listening and you can get me a bottle of proper 12, let me know and we will make this happen because that has been pretty elusive for me so far. Second of all, I would also like to point out a new, possibly temporary, we'll see how she turns out tonight, Audra the Cue Card Girl is helping us out tonight on the podcast. So uh, Sam and Kyle, have, you know, they're business um, responsibilities have grown, and so now we have Audra the cue card girl helping us out tonight. Yeah, we really appreciate her, and not only do we appreciate her, but we also appreciate everybody who's listening in all of those countries I listed off, because, again, that's just amazing, so thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to our bullshit. Yeah, thank you for sushi and whiskey and stuff like that from the places I remember when he said that. <laughs> Well, Tom, you think we should get into our main story tonight? Well, it's not so much a story. It's it. This is going to be more of a obstacle course of mental toughness because people tonight's topic, while extremely important and actually really fascinating, if you look into it, is billing. Dun dun dun. Yeah, there's not really a much cooler way to say it after that. After that, and and the cool thing I would point out. To And I know it seems like our non-medical listeners message me or get a hold of me way more than our medical people. For those that are not in the medical field, now you'll kind of understand why we do some of the things we do for the billing side. And maybe this will explain why your visit goes the way it goes or we ask certain questions or whatever. And for the people that are on the medical side, this one will maybe give you a more in-depth look at what we do or why we do it. If you don't know, because I'll be honest, there was multiple things I didn't know or I wasn't exactly 100% sure on and I kind of went over it, especially in my favorite part. I can't wait to later on is some of the ICD-10 codes. Yeah, Oh, yeah. We got some good ones coming up. I will use them. I will use them. So I was thinking of analogies of how I would explain medical billing, and this is the one that I thought of. So bear with me, Tom, because this may initially doesn't sound good, but I think it'll I think it'll work out. I would think of medical billing like the sewer system for like a town. Generally, most people aren't don't care that it's there as long as it's functioning the way that it's supposed to be. But it's still vitally important. And when you get down into it, sometimes it's a shitty deal. Wow, that's a 
completely apt and really good analogy. I was thinking like getting into those old timey fights with a kangaroo that you see like on the black and white silent reels. Oh yeah. yeah. It just beats you into fucking submission for no reason whatsoever. That's kind of how I feel about the whole billing system, but you know, whatever we can go with the sewer system. I like that one too. Well, we're going to make you feel better about it by the end of this show, Tom. And just to let our listeners know, of course, obviously you've seen the time when you download this. But this probably will be a little bit of a longer episode. Generally, we try to shoot for, you know, anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and five, kind of depending on guests and different things that we have going on. But honestly, there was just so much information with billing that we want to get out to you. It's maybe hard to get it compressed into that. Maybe. But I have faith that we're going to be roughly close. Like I said, I don't want that kangaroo ass whooping of uh, information, so... Let's uh let's let's get started. Are you ready? Are you ready to dive into this shit? I am ready. Let's go. Let's get in that sewer. All right. So the first thing we need to talk about is the HPI. So the most important thing I can explain to everybody is when you're dealing with the HPI, there are eight requirements for a thorough HPI. And the first one is location, which is the location of the or where the problem is. Two is the quality of which is the nature of the pain or the problem. Yeah, I think pain is a good one to use just for a general, like, so location of the pain, quality of the pain, because I think it makes it yeah, so, easier. Yeah, okay, so, I mean, we can do for anything, but in this case, let's just assume the patient's in there for pain at this point. So you're going to know where the pain is, the nature of the pain, severity, you know, is there a scale or, you know, how do they describe it, duration, how long has it been going on, timing, and timing is a good one, like, for correlation, like, is it worse in the morning? Is it worse at night? You know, is it better after movement, etc.? cetera? Uh, context, is it associated with anything else? Modifying factors, it would be the next one. Like, what efforts have been made by the patient to make this better? Are they taking Tylenol? Are they taking Motrin, etc.? And the last one would be associated signs and symptoms. So is anything else happening with this? Uh, headache, uh, blurred vision, etc. So just to throw an example out there, so we make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page and using the pain. So let's, let's I'm going to hit all eight of these with pain. So let's say, okay, I have right upper quadrant pain. I say that it's quite sharp, and I rate it at an 8 out of a 10. Uh, it's been going on for, you know, about three days. Generally, tends to be worse after I'm up moving around. Context, it's a little bit harder one to rattle off. Do you fart a lot? Huh. Oh, you oh, you mean for this, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess that- that might be more. That might be more of an associated. But you know, is it? You know, is there anything else going on? Right. Uh, modifying factors. You know, I've tried Tums and I've tried you know Tylenol and it's just not helping. And oh, I'm very nauseous and I get a little sweaty at times. And so I mean, that kind of hits all eight of those HPI elements. So part of the reason that's important to know those elements is because they will play a, a more in depth part of how the billing cycle or not billing cycle, but the billing process goes along. For instance, um, we'll talk about stuff like there's two different types of the two categories of HPI are brief and extended. And very simply a brief HPI means you have covered one to three of those elements. 
and an extended HPI is four to eight of those elements. And the reason you need to know that is because depending on what EM code you use, again, something we'll cover here in a minute, but I'm sure most of you know what that is. And if you don't, that's the code that we use to for basically classifying the entire visit and what kind of visit we are saying it was. Almost all of the people we're going to be dealing with, I'm going to use 99. So if you hear me say a 204 or 213, I'm going to be saying that with the understanding that there was a 99 at the beginning of it. Now, if you're an in-hospital or different type of PA or NP, you might have some different codes. But in general, you know, I'm an office outpatient NP, so that's kind of how I'm going to reference it. So be aware if you are in a different setting that there might be some differences in the different codes, but that's not really important in the overall uh, context of the conversation. So, like, if you're doing a 204, a 205, a 214, or a 215, then you would be required to have an extended HPI to classify it in those uh, categories. So that's why it's important to know what the elements are and how many elements you need for what EM code you're using. And a lot of the computerized templates now, um, I'm personally not a big template person. I like to free text, and I also dictate, so uh, mine's a little bit different. But I know like our particular software uses templates, and you can go in and flag whenever you ask about location. It flags it so that you it the computer basically dumbs it down for you and counts those up for you. And like Tom said, this kind of helps to begin the understanding you know, it's a nine nine two one. What? Like, is this a two one two? Is this a two one three? A two one four? And so we're gonna kind of break those down as we go through this too. So to try to help, because I actually did have someone send me a question and be like, "Well, you know, I feel like I should be charging two one fours more than two one threes." And so we'll we'll get into that. But the next step is review of systems, and this one. So we we have auditors that come in at the at the hospital's request, and they randomly pull ten charts and check them every quarter, I believe. And this was one that I've gotten dinged on before in the past is my review of systems because I do use a template for review of systems. And so I would just pull in several and I may not always address those. And that's a problem. So review system, you know, constitutional eyes, ENT, cardio, respiratory, GI, GU, musculoskeletal, integument, neuro, psych, endo. Basically, if it's just pertinent to the problem and you only need one of those systems and and extended is two to eight, and complete is all of them, obviously. Um, and so mine would pre-populate to there's no rashes, no seizures, no or you know denies rashes, denies fevers, denies seizures, denies joint aches. And so then the the coder or the auditor was like, so did you you specifically ask on this two year old with an earache if they were having seizures and if they were having joint aches and stuff like that? And so you got to be careful with some of those templates to make sure that you're putting in appropriate information. So that's a good point, and that's some of the things I was going to point out. First of all, if it is a young child, because let's remember, and again, non-health people listening, and and sometimes we forget overall, the review of systems is supposed to be what the patient is reporting to you. Okay, This is their subjective line of questioning. So that's why that's important to remember that, because if it's a two-year-old and you're trying to talk about seizures – Maybe at some point you need to make sure to put in your documentation, or at least I do, mother, father, whoever is present and answering questions for the patient. So that if later on there is a questionable, how do you know this? That's generally how I have done that so far. 
And I will use in my template for review systems, I will use, because we have a button to click that says CHPI under, like, ENT. The one thing that I don't like at the bottom of review systems is all others negative. Because when you check that, or whenever you highlight that or however it works in your system, you are telling those coders and that insurance company and anybody who happens to look at that chart that you have specifically addressed every single one of those review systems and they're negative. So be very, very cautious using all others negative. Very good point. Um, and I'm not saying I have never done that. I have done that. In general, though, again, I know which patients I feel comfortable using that type of terminology with or the very popular, at least in my area, uh, negative unless stated in HPI. The thing is, though, is when it comes to billing for your organization, that may not always fly. So that's why it's important to remember what the review systems is, why it's being done, what what its purpose in the charting is. And Ben kind of went over this for a minute, but I kind of want to get a little more detail of the three types of review systems and how they apply to the code is there's the pertinent review systems, which is inquiries about the system, the systems involved with the chief complaint. So it's an eye pain. Did you actually ask them about their eyeball? Right. There you go. Then there's the extended review systems, which is a direct system related to the chief complaint, and then two to eight additional systems that may be affected by any problem with that. Which that one's really easy to get if you think about it, because we're talking two to eight systems. So if you have a, again, let's say a kid with an earache. So I've addressed, okay, they have ear pain, so that is one system. Are they running a fever? No. Okay, I've, I've hit two systems now just by asking that question. Well, and see, that's that's one of the things I, I was going to say about the whole review of systems also was, first of all, constitutional pretty much covers everything. Like, there's no chief complaint where the constitutional is not going to be involved in it I, just because fatigue, dizziness, you know, whatever. Okay, so you need to know that. Circulatory and respiratory apply to everything because if they're not breathing or they're having chest pain, I don't care if they're having, you know, and if, they, if their ankle swelling, you know, because they rolled it. Um, I need to know about that sharpness or uh, sharp pain in your chest. So you can easily always cover constitutional, respiratory, and circulatory, even if they're not involved. Those are those are pertinent systems to basic life functioning. So those are always good ones to, to be aware that you can do. Uh, the third system or the third review of systems is a complete, which Ben kind of talked about, which is the system with the chief complaint plus a minimum of 10 organ systems. And each of those systems must have individual documentation of positive or negative aspects. So if you're going to do a complete review of systems, make sure uh, that you're doing a thorough job and you're hitting all of it because otherwise it's not going to, you're going to do a lot of work for no reason. The other thing I was going to say is I think everyone's documentation might be a little different. Excuse me. Our EMR automatically does positive and negatives. So, I mean, I guess I could – there is a box for texting notes. That's where I can put in, you know, negative unless stated in HPI. But otherwise, we're going to be doing the individual positives and negatives. So just make sure you know what kind of software you have and what you're doing with it. And then the last portion of your history is your PFIS, which is your past medical, family, social history areas. And, you know, basically, I mean, my nurse pulls PFISH in on every note, and, of course, I make sure that I review that. But it's none on your PFISH, pertinent, which is just one of those history areas, past, family, or social, or complete, which is either two or, two or three of them. And see, 
when I was doing my research and the way I laid it out in my outline, I had that a little later. So we were going to cover P-Fish at some point. I'm just glad you went ahead and knocked it out while we were here. So now we've covered HPI. Now we're covering review of systems. So the next, and you know, you could say arguably one of the most important pieces, if not the most important piece, is the physical physical examination. Yep. So on the physical examination, you know, looking at body areas, and then there's so there's body areas and there's organ systems. So body areas, we're looking at like the head, neck, chest, including the axilla, genitalia, groin, buttocks, the abdomen each individual extremity and the back and then organ systems again constitutional eyes ENT cardiovascular respiratory GI GU muscular skin neuropsych and lymph again those sound very similar to what we were talking about in the history episode but this is the actual or not the history episode but the history portion but this is the actual examination part of it yeah, you have to remember, as far as documentation or if there's a legal proceeding or whatever else is going to happen, this is going to be what you found yourself as a practitioner during your examination of the patient. So the review system is the subjective on the patient side. The HPI is just kind of the story, but the physical examination is your documentation that you did this. So make sure you are aware of that. And with all those systems that been noted, again, the way that we're going to look at it is that there are four types of physical exams, or I should say there are four classes of physical exams. So there's the problem-focused physical exam, which is limited ex- to the affected area. So again, let's just say they came in with right ankle pain. So you did the right ankle. Okay. So then there's the expanded problem, which is the affected body system plus any surrounding systems that may be affected by the complaining system. Then there is a detailed physical exam, which is an extended exam of the affected area and all the surrounding, um, not just a couple. You're going to have to hit everything that's uh, pertinent. And then there's the final and comprehensive general uh, multi-system exam, which this is, this is one of the nerd points I found out. So there's a 1995 set of guidelines and a 1997 set of guidelines. Yes. And the comprehensive is under 1997 guidelines. So if you've never heard that, your place might somehow still be using 1995 guidelines. Here's the only important thing you really need to know other than the fact that those things fucking exist, which blows my mind. But – if you use 1995 guidelines, you cannot intermix 1997 guidelines. Like it appears CMS doesn't give a shit which one you use. You just pick one and whichever one you're going with, which probably should be 1997. You should probably be sticking with that. But if you're 1997, you can't throw in like, Oh, well the guideline here for 95 says no, 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 no. You pick one and you stick with one. So most likely you're 97 and you'll have that fourth class. And honestly, and I don't know about you, Tom, but for me, using either detailed or comprehensive, generally, the only time I'm going to use those is like my well-child exams, because obviously we're examining everything because it's a well-child exam. New patients, because you got to check everything over to make sure that everything looks good. And then things like our DOT physicals or employee exams, things like that, because again, we're trying to hit as many, you assess everything when you're doing those. Yeah, and most patients... Or uh, you're going to be able to use your problem-focused. Um, again, this is de- setting-dependent. So for me in the office, though, most people are going to be 
problem focused. You're going to have a few. I'm not saying I haven't thrown out a couple. When you get a patient coming in with a very simple chief complaint, uh, painless hematuria, <laughs> or there, it just says hematuria, then you start talking to him, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Shit is going downhill real quick during this, you know, talking to the patient. Then I might start throwing in a bunch of extra systems to cover my butt and not just cover my butt, but do best for the patient. But documentation wise, like, hey, we went ahead and we went the the extra mile for checking him. But in general, you're right. It's probably going to be just problem focused. If you have templates, because like our templates will pre-populate a lot of this stuff for you. Go back and read through that and change the shit. Nothing pisses me off more than reviewing a note from another provider in the area. And it one of the things that our system pre-populates with is like um, abdomen, uh, like scaphoid. Um, and this is a patient who's like 600 pounds. Clearly, scaphoid is not the way to describe this patient's abdomen. But it's what was pre-populated in there. It didn't get changed. So if you're using templates like that, make sure you're changing the shit to make sure that it matches. Because I have, I personally have, on a work comp case, been deposed and had to sit there and read my documentation word for word through the deposition. Not a fun experience. So make sure that you're changing that stuff. Yeah, again... You know, I have been through multiple, multiple legal proceedings in my life in front of juries, not in front of juries, etc. When you get that the first time, you'll start to realize how important documentation becomes. We are trying to help you if you have not been through that or if you are ever concerned that that might be a problem. Heed our words, okay? It doesn't take long. And if you're using templates, that's fine. But you better be reviewing them and making sure that it's accurate to what you actually physically did during the examination. Because what happens is, is three years later, when you don't remember, that's the only thing you have to go on. And if you put patient didn't have any problems in it, you know, your basic template examination and something catastrophic happens, you're going to have to answer for why you put that on the examination portion of your charting. So... Please just, like I said, the HPI, try and do a good job. But, you know, I think most of us are going to the story. The review system is their point of view, but especially that physical exam. That is your words. Like, that's, if anything's going to get you, I, I'm thinking that's going to be the part that gets you the most. Because there's no, there's no other if ands, or buts about it. Like, that's supposed to be your documentation of what you saw. And if you're putting the wrong stuff you're going to pay the price. So then the third portion of how to determine the appropriate E&M code is your medical decision-making. And so this is basically calculating the number of diagnosis or treatment options, the amount and the complexity of the data reviewed, and the level of risk to the patient. And so, again, it, was that it breaks it down into those three. So the number of diagnoses and treatment options, basically that's either like minor, maybe it's an established problem, like hypertension, and it's stable, Hypertension, but it's worsening. Um, it's a new problem. Hey, they have hypertension. Oh, but we're also having a heart attack. Uh, but, you know, something along those lines. And then a new problem to the examiner with an additional workup plan is kind of the highest on the treatment option. So I, I'll be honest. I think if you are in an office setting, the vast majority of the E&M codes which, by the way, E&M, it took me forever to figure that I, I was a dumb rookie 
uh, I still am a dumb rookie NP, but at first I was like, I just used the word ENM or I just said EM code and everybody knew what I was talking about. But then one day I was like, what does EM, EM stand for? Which by the way, it stands for evaluation and management, but it's just kind of funny that I was billing people using these codes and I literally had no idea what it meant. So again, sometimes the devil's in those details, make sure you know. But the whole point of this ramble is for the vast majority of us, 99213 and 99214, at least in my opinion, are going to cover the great majority of the patients we're going to see. No, I agree with you. And actually, we kind of what it, that's what insurance companies generally expect is it should look like a bell curve. So you should have very few level ones. You should have a few more level twos, majority level three, a few level fours, and then very few level five. So it should kind of have that bell curve shape to it. So the majority of these are going to be 213s, maybe 214s. I have charted 215s, but generally those are like patients who I seen them in the office. Like I had a gentleman who I seen him in the office and he's like, you know, I'm having this chest pain and I have to hit my chest every time, you know, to get it to go away. And I sent him over and his troponin was like 27. Hey, you know what? We're going to have to coordinate care for you. We're shipping you out to a hospital that can cath you and, you know, you're having a heart attack. So I mean, something like that where it's a high risk for the patient. There's lots of complex data going back and forth. And that certainly would generate a 215 code. Granted, and but that's my point. Uh, if people are out there and you're super worried, and again, that was one of my first concerns is, oh, God, you know, 213 versus 214, 212, 215. You know, 213 is pretty much going to be your baseline. Yes. And, and for the majority of people, I, I think that's it's going to fall correct. And I'm sure there's some jackass out there, right? Well, not for me. Well, okay, for, not for you. Okay. But 99.9% of us, Probably working in the office setting at least, okay? Again, if you're a hospitalist or a specialty or whatever, you may have some different codes. But if you're working in the office setting as a PA or an NP, 213 is going to be your baseline. 214 is going to be a, a, a second place. You, then you're going to get into that bell curve he's talking about. So don't don't let it sweat you too much. But having said that, there are some requirements for this. So for a 213... When you're having your HPI, you have to cover one to three of those elements that we discussed earlier. Uh, you have to have a review of systems of the chief complaint system. Your physical exam has to be six to 11 elements, and it's generally considered a low-risk illness. Your 214s are going to be four or more of those elements we discussed for your HPI. Your review of system has to be two to nine of those systems. That's when you're going to also, you definitely have to have a P-fish for your history. And then you're going to have to have 12 plus elements for your examination. And the two and fours are considered your moderate risk. So be be comfortable using a two and four. Just know that you're going to have to, it, you have to go that extra step to do a two and four. The other way that you can calculate that, and this is if you're doing a lot of counseling or coordination of care, and that's actually what it's called. You can bill by time, but again, it has to be greater than 50% of the time that you spent with that patient was either counseling the patient or in coordination of care where we're transferring them out or we're getting them referred out to a different provider, whatever the case may be. And so in looking at just a, let's say an established patient, if, you know, it's automatically becomes a 214 if it's more than 25 minutes, it's a 215 if it's 40 minutes. And those are the two big ones that I would hit because generally if we're counseling and coordinating care, it's going to be 
it's not going to be a 15 minute visit or 10 minute visit if we're doing a lot of counseling or if we're trying to get everything coordinated for the patient. Yeah, exactly. And so like a new patient, 30 minutes would be a 203, 45 minutes would be an 04, and 60 minutes would be an 05. And then it's just 15 minutes for a 213. So I I don't I have never used time as I know a few MPs that have and a few physicians, but even with them, it has been more of a rarity versus a that's what they do all the time. I I just have never run into that situation. I have certainly had patients where I could have, but I still chose to just go ahead and build them as a 214 or 213 and then move forward from there. I generally, I don't use it very often. I mean, a handful of times a week, maybe. If I'm doing like paps and pelvics, uh, things of that nature, I will because a lot of that is counseling uh, as far as birth control issues, things of that nature. If I am transferring the patient out, generally I will start billing by time with the coordination of care. You know, having to call the EM, you know, calling the ambulance, calling the cardiologist on call, getting everything coordinated for that patient. Or if we're doing a, there are times that you have patients that come in and they're in maybe a crisis or they've just got a lot going on, and so you're doing a lot of basically counseling. And so, you know, it does kind of throw your schedule off sometimes, but that is the other time that I do occasionally use it, but not often. So it, it's one of those rare things. Um, I, I cover or we wanted to cover it because it is part of the process. And I'm sure there are people that will use it or it has been beneficial to. It's just not something I have a lot of experience with. So I didn't really want to talk too much about it. Ben? Uh, the only other thing that I would say is that I did talk to our charge master at our hospital and uh, got some information from her that I just kind of wanted to pass along too. If this is an established patient and let's say you're seeing them for their diabetes and their hypertension and their hyperlipidemia because, you know, patients generally don't just have one. If they have multiple chronic conditions and you address those individually in your documentation, you can count that on your medical decision-making tree, which generally will kick you up to like a 214. And... They cannot see another provider in the same practice within the last three years and then still be able to be billed as a new office visit. So if they've seen somebody else in that same office, then it's an established patient, not a new office visit. It's funny you, you just mentioned some of that stuff because I met a physician. He called it the Appalachian Triad, and I believe it was hyperlipidemia, uh, hypertension and diabetes. He's like, yep, that's the Appalachian triad right there. So <laughs> just so you know, I mean, it's out there. Ben, I think we got E&M codes. I'm ready to, uh, yeah. to tackle ICD. I will say that I did get a document from our charge master. Um, and then I found another one, a similar document online also. So if you're wanting this information, get hold of us on the email admin at justsomepodcast.com. And we can shoot this link over to you. It's from rheumatology.org. But it really breaks it down great. And if you're having problems trying to figure out what you should be using as far as your code, then this document may help you. But, Tom, let's jump into the next section, why don't you? Yeah, the uh, I was around um, for the whole switching around from ICD-9 to ICD-10. It was a pain in the ass? Uh, it was a pain in the ass. You know, I, I guess I was still – I didn't get the big deal – because like I didn't deal with it a lot. I was a staff nurse. I was I didn't let stuff like that really bother me. I guess when I was in staff nursing, I was just like, uh, it's just one more goddamn hoop I got to jump through. I it didn't bother me. But doing the research for this episode, I actually was like, you know, I'm kind of glad we went to ICD-10 
And also, the rest of the world had been on ICD-10 for a long time yeah. before America decided to catch up. Yeah, no, we were way behind on this. Like, I think it was numerous years. I don't, I don't remember the exact time that ICD-10 transitioned for the rest of the world, but uh, we were not. But as a matter of fact, uh, the last time I saw something on this, not only were we behind, we were so far behind, the rest of the world had already started designing the next system – we were still on ICD-9. So that should tell you how far we drug our feet. Way to go, America. So for you computer nerds out there, that would be like if we were using like Windows 95 instead of Windows 10. Yeah. I mean, several things had gone by, modifications, updates, etc. And we were still like, no, 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 we got this. And, and to be fair to an extent, it's not that ICD-9 was failing it's just that ICD-10 improved on a lot of stuff. So we're going to go over that. So the the first basic thing you need to know is ICD-9 codes were three to five numerical numbers that laid out a code for billing. So it would be the 309.05, whatever. So the ICD-10 comes along, and it is three to seven numerical characters with letters added. So there's very good reasons why they did that. And the first is it allows for greater specificity. You can, it's not just, you know, you can do just cellulitis, but now you can do cellulitis of the cheek, cellulitis of the ears, cellulitis of the arm, etc. It also allows for laterality. So now you can be cellulitis of left upper arm, cellulitis of right lower leg, etc. Um, you can get way more specific. It also updated the amount of codes using this system. Uh, ICD-9 was approximately 13,000 codes, and ICD-10 starts off with 68,000 codes. So there, there's just a vastly bigger pool of information that, to be completely frank, for me sometimes it's just befuddling to go through. Like, I just want to put goddamn ear pain, you know, I mean, I already know ear pain, but I'm just saying, for example, you just want to put something simple and you are finding every goddamn code except for the one that you know is there and you just can't put, yeah. What'd you say? Except for the one that you want. Yeah, exactly. I thought you said something about the butt. I was like, well, I don't know which one you're talking about, but that's Hillary's area, so. From a provider standpoint, because I was a provider when we switched, made, you know, we pulled that trigger to go from nine to ten, and I can remember them pulling us into classes and saying, "Okay, you know, this is a good thing." You, you, like like Tom said, it increases it increases specificity and laterality. The one that I it still sticks out in my brain, and I still use it frequently. Okay, for like I see nine sprained ankle was a quick, easy code. Sprained ankle, boom, there it was. Sprained ankle now is like 47 different codes because it's laterality. Is it the left or the right? And then it's what tendon or what ligament is sprained in the sprained ankle. And then it's, is it the initial encounter, the subsequent encounter, or the squala? So there's just a shit ton of codes now for something that was very easy initially. So I think from a, a provider standpoint, it does slow things down, but I see the benefit to ICD-10 now that we we use it. It just was not something I was originally looking forward to jumping into. Well, and one of the other beautiful things about the ICD-10 with the mixture of letters and numbers and the expanded uh, character count was, and they, and they planned ahead for this, so I'll give them credit for this. 
well, I'm giving her credit for everything else. So I'm just saying, I think this is really cool. So they planned ahead for future technologies and procedures. So sometimes you'll be going through a code and you'll see, you know, W91.XXA or, you know, 57XXA. Those, those X's represent possible future uh, diagnoses. Yeah, so I think that's pretty, yeah, I think that's pretty awesome that they said, hey, we know in the future that there is going to be new technologies, new procedures, new treatments, et cetera, whatever. Let's make a system that can accommodate that. So that's part of the other reason that it was so important for us to switch to ICD-10. And I know one problem that I have seen other providers having. So the end code is like is an A and S or a D generally, especially like your injury codes, which is – Again, the initial encounter, the subsequent encounter, the squela. That is specific to the provider, and that's sometimes hard for people to understand. So if if a patient was seen in the, in the ER for a car accident, and let's say they have neck pain, and then they come to see you, some people want to charge that as a subsequent, or a, yeah, subsequent visit, but it's not. It is an initial visit because you have seen them. Now, if they see you, and then tomorrow they see whoever's working walk-in again, that's an initial visit. That's not a subsequent encounter. That's not Squala. That is individually specific to that provider. Yeah, and that's that's part of the stuff that, again, as a new NP, and now ICD-10 had been going on for a while, like, I guess they just assumed we knew that shit because I was like, whoa, uh, I felt real dumb having to ask other people in the office, like, uh, should I should I be doing this or that? Or, or it's just not something that came up during clinicals. It's just... Oh, man, you know, so it can't be a mind-numbing amount of information. Just be aware, though, there are some pretty cool factors about the ICD-10, and and overall, I'm glad we went to it. Not just because of those. Uh, There's updated terminology, like things that used to be old-school sayings. You know, they updated to what we refer to it now as. I I mean, I haven't seen black lung in there or something like that, but, you know, whatever. You know, the new terminology is also part of it. You know, Ben – I can't not talk about some of my favorite ICD-10 codes. I I think we got Um, several that we want to kind of run through because with the increased specificity, like we talked about, not only does that increase the laterality and is it what tendon or ligament it is that it's sprained, but it also increases a lot of your exposure codes and things of that nature. And so you kind of get some really interesting ones, right, Tom? Oh, yeah. So I'm going to start off this party with uh, the first one I heard about when we were switching to ICD-10, and it cracked me up, and that is W61.61XD, which is bitten by duck. I am not fucking with you. There is literally a code for bitten by duck. And then to break it down further for you, like we were telling you guys about the specificity, there is not just a bitten by duck. There's a bitten by duck initial encounter, a bitten by duck subsequent encounter, and sequela of bitten by duck. That is right, people. Three separate codes for being bitten by a duck. Well, one of the ones that I found that I kind of liked was V9107XA, which is burn due to your water skis on fire. Now, how fast do you have to be traveling on water? your skis to burst into flames 88 miles per hour Boom. that's when your flux that's when your flux capacitor kicks on and then you will travel back in time 1.21 gigawatts 
some of the other ones I found that I really kind of enjoyed. Uh, don't don't act like you didn't enjoy no, that. I did. 88 miles per hour, flames through the water, Marty McFly goes back in time. Like, come on. Like, the oh, visual is there. I see it. I do. But, Tom, I think, I, I think every person can relate to this one. Uh, Z63.1, problems with the in-laws. Well, that could literally be half of every code, especially from November to December. Truth. You're going to see, you're going to see a lot of those. And I'm noticing a pattern, uh, and I didn't see this specifically. Maybe this is something I failed in the research, but I've noticed if it's got a W, a V, or a Z at the beginning, it's going to be a pretty interesting code. And I think the bit by duck as a W. And those, I think, are your injury codes and your external forces is why they are so... Ah, uh, that okay, that makes more sense. Now, see, there you are using that common sense. Way to I go. Once in a while. You. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know what... I know you have one more. I'm saving mine for last because this is just the funniest shit I ever heard of. Well, I have two more, and then, and then I'll I'll turn it over to you for the last one here. Because I mean, we could look hundreds of these, I'm sure. How about V nine seven dot three three X sucked into a jet engine? That okay? Me. You are having a real shitty day. To be fair, and I don't know if you've never seen this. I have a uh, cousin who is in the Navy, and he. Well, he used to. He's up in rank now, so he doesn't have to go out there. But he used to work the flight line, and that is a real hazard when you're on an aircraft carrier. I mean, it's it's a hazard anywhere else. But there are there's actual YouTube videos for people that are like, who the hell would no look it yeah. up? Because when those pilots go to uh, what the, you know military power for launching off an aircraft carrier, the it's not like you have to be near the jet intake, like. Some of those engines are so powerful. If you're within like a six to eight foot radius of anywhere near that front intake, up to 12, depending on the type of aircraft, it could suck you off your feet into an intake. So while we're joking about it, and I mean, it is hilarious. I mean, you're going to have a shit day. Like, I'm sure that's followed by deceased in most cases. But it is a legit, you know, like... When you talk to someone that's lived through having to worry about getting sucked into a jet intake, you know, you're like, oh, shit. All right. Well, I mean, I would still I would, I'd laugh at somebody that got bit by a duck. Yeah. But if you're like, uh, I got sucked into a jet engine, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then the last one that I have and, you know, we we're talking about the X's were filler codes. So this one, obviously, they are planning. I don't know what the hell the ICD-10 people are planning. Here's this code, Tom. You ready? X. Zero five dot XXXA, which is exposure to or melting nightwear initial encounter. Now, how much friction do you have to build up for your underwear to melt? 88 miles per hour. <laughs> That's what the flux capacitor kicks off. It's uh, approximately 1.21 gigawatts of power. Um, or, or as the ladies say, every time they're around Tom, there you Throw go. Your last one. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about all the X's though in that last That's code because, like, how many different is it for? Like every different type of underwear. So thong underwear gets its own melting code versus full butt underwear gets its full different code. You know, I'm just like, wow. Um, okay, people. <laughs> when we flipped 
when we flipped to ICD-10 again, somebody told me about the bitten by duck, and I was like, wow, what a fucking idiot, you know, whatever. But this this one I heard, and I had to find for myself because I didn't believe them. I did not believe this was a code. I was like, look, bitten by duck, sure. Um, if they had said melting underwear, I was like, based on everything else I've heard, I could believe it. But when I heard this code, I was like, fuck you. This is not possible that we are this concerned about it. And then, lo and behold, um, I was incorrect. This is an actual code. So, Ben, yes, sir. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay this out for you. And it doesn't. Here's it. Here's the other thing that just fucked me up. It doesn't have as many X's <laughs> as the one you just read. <laughs> like, how the hell does it, this have more X's? Okay, so the code is, and I want people to look this up. Seriously, this is. A, V95.41XA. What's that, Tom? V95.41XA. That is crash of spacecraft and injury to occupant. That is correct. If you are on the goddamn space station, that's my new goal now. We have got to figure out a way for NASA to put this. I want a download and play at the International Space Station. (laughs) Uh, I guess we can email it to them. We'll see what happens. Oh, come on. Yeah, we, we're doing that because I want them to know that Tom from Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practitioners is all over this because I guarantee you this, Ben. I guarantee you. I don't know when or how. I have no idea. Like, I can't even figure out a way that I would lie about it in any coherent Aliens. <laughs> but I'm telling you right now, before I am done with my career as a practitioner – I'm going to use this this diagnosis code. It's going to happen. I'm go- I don't know how, but I'm going to. I expect to. a text message or whatever the hell's technology we have at that particular time. A message the immediate moment that you use this. Like, hey, look what I just did. I just took care of something from injured my, my spacecraft. Initial encounter. Yes, yes. Initial encounter for injury from a from a space crash. I would assume that if I ever put this into an EMR, first of all, it'd probably automatically flag it and be like, no. And second of all, like a few hours later, the Department of Homeland Security is going to show up with a NASA official and be like, okay, yeah, <laughs> you, did you use the yeah? Did you use the code for a spaceship crash? Because we need to have a talk to you, a talk with you, I should say. So I, I don't know. How, Ben? I don't know, okay? But burning underwear, I really want to get in there. Bitten by duck, as I'm laughing in their face, (laughs) I'm going to use. Uh, Yeah. But injury due to uh, spaceship or spacecraft, that is an absolute life goal. Maybe instead of Department of Homeland Security visiting you, it will be Secret Service, which wouldn't be entirely unheard of in your house. Hey, hold up. Like, yeah, that was not me. We'll and... save that story for another time. <laughs> a little teaser. Oh, yeah, that's a teaser for Tom being on a red flag list when he didn't do a damn thing wrong. So, anyways, enough of that. The point is, Ben, is there is let, – let's get back Let's get back on track for just a, <laughs> just a second from spacecraft injuries is – so ICD-10, while it was a major pain in the ass to – Everyone involved in healthcare when it first came out has really expanded our ability to give accurate diagnosis for patients, 
and record them. And again, they, they had some forethought and said, how can we make this so that as future technologies come out, we don't have to use a whole new ICD code system. We can just implement it here. Now, I am sure an ICD-11 is coming. It doesn't really matter. Like, they're going to find a way to shoehorn that in and force it down our throat. But the point is that ICD-10 should, in theory, be able to last Maybe quite a while. Maybe it'll be like Apple, and it'll be like ICD-10X, ICD-10R, <laughs> instead of ICD-1011. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get it. I just – but see, I also want to tell Apple, like, that's such a cop-out. Like, just give me a new goddamn phone. Like, don't – this isn't the 10X. Just say 11, okay? Like, you're not going to run out of numbers anytime soon there, Apple. Like, get on it. So, it's like infinity numbers, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, call Neil deGrasse Tyson and have him explain how numbers work to you. And then make a new goddamn phone. So, just do that. I, like, I'm an Apple fan. I am an Apple fan. But, boy, they do some shit that I just – I sit back and I go, man, Steve Jobs is shitting in his coffin right now or whatever they put him in. Because <laughs> I can't believe some of the stuff that's going on, but eh, that's an opinion piece. But Ben, I, th- I think we I think we covered billing fair. Well, we did we did what we could with what we had, which you know, considering is us, not a lot. Well, and there is a third section that we wanted to talk about, and that is the CPT codes and those RVUs. Oh, you know, you know why I didn't think about that? Why? Because since I don't deal with that at all, I decided to not do any research whatsoever on this topic. And so I am basically here to be a thorn in your side the entire time you're going to talk about this. What's different than any other time? I didn't say it was different, asshole. I just said that's what I'm doing, and I'm making my intentions known. Well, all right then. Good times. So Get to it. Your CBT codes. This actually... Yeah, these are actually owned by the AMA, Tom. Did you know that? They're what? The CPT codes are copyrighted and owned by the AMA. No, I didn't know that because I didn't do any research on it. Well, they are. And so CPT stands for Current Procedural Terminology, and that's basically the code that we use to tell insurance companies what we did. And so actually any code that we do in the clinic is a CPT code. So even... Like the 99213s, 212s, everything that we talked about earlier, technically those are CPT codes. They're just not the ones that we consider to be above and beyond the office visit, obviously. So there's actually a lot of CPT codes out there. And the majority of and they break them down into certain numbers. Anything from like 00, 100 through 0199 is anesthesia. And seeing this one, next one I don't really like, but it's like the 10,000s through basically the 69,000s is quote-unquote surgery. But that's a lot of our procedure codes. So toenail removals, INDs, lacerations, or suture repairs, things like that, those are all in the surgery code. So hold on. what What's the anesthesia? Anesthesia is basically 100 through 2,000. 100 through 2,000. There's literally two codes. that That's all you need for anesthesia. No. Worked, One, did it work. That's it. That's it. That's all you need. Uh, and surgery, there's like 50,000, yeah. Um, anything with a 7 at the beginning is radiology. Anything with an 8 is pathology or laboratory procedures. And then your 9s are your uh, medical or your medicine services and procedures and your E&M codes. Again, a radiology needs one code. 
cannot uh, rule out. That's there you go. That's the entire radiology fucking CPT right there. One code. I just simplified this by thousands of codes. Anesthesia worked or didn't work. Radiology, I don't know anyways. There you go. I need clinical correlation. There you go. That's bam. Be nice. So- I'd be complete. You know and I know that they are laughing their ass off. <laughs> so... There you go. Unfortunately, because Tom didn't do any research, obviously you're going to know that three-dollar procedures not just correlate clinically, but this is going to cover every single type of radiological procedure that we would do. So every single body system, x-ray, CT, MRI, is all going to have a different CBT code because that's how we tell the people what we know, what we are doing, what we want. But This is why I didn't study. <laughs> It's great for me. So, if you have them in the office and you're billing that nine nine two one three or two one four, how do you know when to use that versus when to use like a surgery code? If you're doing a procedure and it is what they are there for specifically, so let's say they come in and they say, "Hey, I had this abscess on my chest." Generally, you're not going to be able to bill for the office code. You're going to bill for the surgery code. Now, if they come in and they're there for their blood pressure, and one of the questions I always ask is, hey, do you have any weird rashes or anything? And they say, oh, you know, I got these little spots on my skin, and it's the uh, AKs or the tendon keratosis. You know, and they're like, hey, you know, you want me to freeze those off over here? Sure. Now I can bill for that code because I addressed their hypertension in the office code, but then I can still bill for freezing off the AKs. So, yeah, so let's let's assume you're a dumb new nurse practitioner and that there have been times that you have put both the office code and the CPT code for uh, incision and drainage. Do you think billing, once they get done cussing at us, yes. they just they just fix that? I would or that. am I – yeah, okay. Because okay. what's going to happen because, basically if they don't fix that – the insurance company, because the insurance companies are not stupid, if they receive a bill for two codes for the exact same diagnosis, and one is $57 and one is $350, which one do you think the insurance company is going to pay, Tom? Well, I don't like insurance companies, so it's probably best I don't answer. <laughs> the biggest thing to remember with these CPT codes, so your 10,000s through your 60,000s, those procedure codes, make sure that you get a signed consent form. We, I've had several that have, I've had the consent form signed and it got lost or misplaced by the front office. I can no longer bill for that code because I do not have the consent because the patients have to understand that informed consent to say not only are, you know, there's risk for infection, bleeding, yada, 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 but that you're also going to be billed at a different rate than the normal office visit because we're doing something above and beyond that. So make sure you get the sign consent forms. Also, uh, that's really good information, especially for people that just realized, hey, did I get one every time? Mm, maybe. Well, you should. And I've gotten a lot better about that. I actually have several on my computer that I have my name and everything pre-populated in. And so I have ear lavage with curette, remo- you know, with curette um, IND, toenail remo- uh, removal, Skin lesion removal. I have about 10 different consent forms, and that way I can just click it, print it, explain it to the patient, have them sign it, and then it gets scanned into their chart. So 
it's a good thing to have. That is a very wise, almost uh, responsible thing to do there, Ben. I'll send them to you, Tom. Oh, listen to you. <laughs> and somebody in my health system is going to go, who the hell's Ben? So <laughs> yeah, don't forget to change it. So, <laughs> Okay, so the other part of the billing part, and this is a part that a lot of people, and we actually had questions about this when we talked about contract negotiations. Those are the U's. Right, Tom? Yeah. Yeah. I told you I didn't study for this. So, I mean, I know what an RVU is, but Ben, I mean, it's not something to be fair. It's one of those things like, again, it's out of sight, out of mind. Like, I don't get like reimbursed for RVUs. I am, you know, not in that realm, and I don't know how many other NPs are. So, this is, I think, going to be good information because I don't think all of us fall into this category. So RVU stands for Relative Value Unit, and those are actually set by CMS. And what we use is actually the WRVU, or the Work Relative Value Unit. And so CMS sets all of those codes for us or as far as what those what they are assigned. So for an example, the 99213 that we talked about, the WRVU value for that is 0.97. For like a 215, because again, that's more comprehensive like we covered earlier in the show, the WRVU value for that is 2.11. So that's a pretty big jump in the RVUs. So what RVUs basically do for providers is this is reimbursement via productivity. Basically, the more RVUs you get, the more potential that you would have to get a bonus of some sort if that was in your contract. Now, generally, I have found that there are two ways that RVUs are generally calculated for bonuses. And because, as Tom pointed out in the very first episode of Just Some Podcast, I am not a math major, right, Tom? Well, I mean, I think you've come a long way. <laughs> well, it's been so. a few months. Uh, so I wrote everything down beforehand so that I wouldn't screw it up when I read it off. So what we're going to do to... Leave that in. <laughs> no. Hey, Kyle, Kyle, sound engineer... Leave that in. By the way, Sam the Fact Checker has given up and is just taking alternating shots of Pepto-Bismol and whiskey at this point. Well, I told you that should be the just some about the shot. So for this, to make it easier on everybody, I'm going to just assume a salary of $90,000 a year, which is a pretty average salary for nurse practitioners. Depending, you know, if you go to salary.com, probably tell you that. Wouldn't it have been easier for math purposes just make it 100 it would have been, but I didn't want to. <laughs> just just want to build some inherent uh, obstacles. Okay, go on. Now, your employer tells you that, hey, we're going to give you that produ- productivity bonus with RVUs, and we're going to pay you $25 for RVU. Now, we're going to estimate, just to make it easy, that you have 400 RVUs per month. That's going to give you 4,800 RVUs per year. So you're going to take that 4800 you're going to multiply it by the $25 per RVU that you get to get a total of $120,000. What your employer is going to do is subtract your salary because they've already paid you that from that number, and that will give you a bonus of $30,000 for that year. Doesn't sound bad, does it, Tom? Uh, it doesn't sound bad at all. And as a matter of fact, now I'm like, why the hell didn't I get RVUs? Well, maybe you need to renegotiate. Go back and listen to episode two. <laughs> Now, the other way that I have seen that they do RBU bonuses is 
they say, okay, we're going to pay you that $90,000 salary, but for the first 3,000 RVUs, we're not giving you anything for it because that's part of your salary. And for, say, from 3,000 RVUs to 4,000 RVUs, we're giving you $10 per RVU. And for anything above 4,000, we're giving you $15 for RVU. Now, we're going to use the same 400 RVUs per month, which is still going to be the 4,800. So from the 3,000 to 4,000, that's going to be a $10,000 bonus. And then from the 4,000 to 4,800 is a $12,000 bonus. So it would be a $22,000 bonus for the year. Still not bad. No, not bad at all. So that is generally how RVUs will work. Tom, you have any questions on that? No, I, I'm just thinking how much gumbo or jambalaya can I get with one of those RVU bonus checks? Well, you're not on RVUs, so none. Well, there you go. That's, there, that's a math answer. Boom. I multiply by zero. So. so whenever you are negotiating your contract and they are talking RVUs, that's what they're talking about. And everything that you do in the clinic is assigned an RVU value. So again, like the, the, the 213 is a 0.97. The, and any of those CPT codes that we talked about earlier, those procedure codes, those all have an RVU value assigned to them as well. Like there was one time I did a laceration on a lip that was all the way through and through. And it was like four and a half RVUs. I was like, dude, I need to start specializing in lip lacerations because that was a hellacious <laughs> RVU value. Yeah, except for then you'd have to be sewing up people's faces all day. And I got a feeling there's going to be some litigation at some point if you if that's what you do for a living. Well, that and there's probably not as many of those as there are cough, congestion, URI, viral gastroenteritis patients out there. Yeah, but I mean – Depends on where you live, I guess. I mean, well, if you live in Mississippi, maybe there are. You live where Fight Club is. I mean, you know, you can. Like, That's what I'm saying. Don't, yeah, don't they have like a lot of like dog fighting rings or something down in hokey places like that? Pissing off every state. Well, I'm working on it. <laughs> so that's basically how our views work. So, like I said, whenever you're negotiating that, you want to understand what form are they using. And I am very particular with my RVUs. I have, I literally have a spreadsheet. That goes back to the day that I started being a provider five years ago. And I can tell you exactly how everything is calculated out. I am meticulous about my RVU calculation because I want to make sure the thing's correct. And not that I don't trust the hospital, but I, you know, I want to make sure that the numbers that I'm seeing whenever I run my reports is very similar to what they're seeing. And well, and not having done any research, I would say Ben is on point with this one. I, I don't think that there's any system or God, I hope you don't work for a system that would purposely try and screw you out of money. But I would like to point out that if the balance is not in their favor, they will find it and come for you. But if they cheated you out of some money, yeah, I don't know that they're going to be rushing out the door to say, Hey, by the way, we did this unless it was some kind of significant amount of money. So not only that, but for future employment or future job offers, it might be able to good to be able to say, hey, this is how productive I am. So it's also a future bargaining chip as well. Exactly. And that's why a lot of new providers don't necessarily start out on RVUs because you don't have that patient base built up. I did not start out on an RVU contract. Um, it took me a while to get my patient base built up to where that it would be something that it would work for me. You know, and for the organization, it benefits them to pay you RVUs because it makes you more productive. You want to see more patients. Now, obviously, there's that fine line between cramming, you know, running patients through like freaking cattle 
and actually being able to spend time with your patients and diagnose them and take care of them like you need to. So we're not saying, oh, because you're on RVUs, let's start seeing 70 freaking patients a day. But there is that it is built in there to be more productive. And I would say there's that risk. I should say even risk. Risk not the right word. But there's that benefit versus, you know, the downside, the pros, the cons of going through RVU. Hey, by the way, get Kyle, the sound engineer, to edit that part out where I sounded like a bumbling idiot. But there's those pros and those cons to having those RVUs. And depending on how you feel about time with your patient, your patient population, et cetera, is, is realistically the best time for you to decide if that is something you should pursue. I personally agree with Ben that like for a new nurse practitioner like myself right now, this would be a disaster for me to go to RVU-based payment. But if you've been in the same area for multiple years, uh, you're comfortable where you're at, and you have no intentions of moving on, etc., RVUs can be a real beneficial payment method. And you can find what the actual RVU value is by searching on the cms.gov website. It's called the Physician Fee Schedule Search. And you can type in whatever your CVT code is that you're wanting to look up what year it is, because it goes all the way back to like 2000, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting because like in 2000, a point, or I'm sorry, 213 was 0.67. It's up to 0.97 now in 18 years. So, you know, it's, that's increasing, but I think that some of that's just because of the complexity of patients as we, we move along. But that's how RVUs are. If you have any further questions on RVUs, shoot, shoot us an email, let us know. If you have any questions on anything that we covered tonight, Join the conversation. Shoot us an email. Shoot us a message. Comment yes on a post, James. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's got a pretty limited vocabulary considering where he lives. So, you know, I'll give him props that he's able to turn on a phone or a computer and actually operate it. So, I mean, he's got that going for him. So, hey, since we were talking about shooting us a message, that sounds like social media, Ben. One more time for all the people in the back. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or find us on the web, www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email to email us about those questions, admin at justsomepodcast.com. And don't forget that if you're doing some shopping online, it's quick, it's easy. Uh, just click on that affiliate link and help us out at Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practitioners. You aren't going to be troubled. It's not going to cost you a thing, but it is going to help us out. Some fellow nurse practitioners that are trying to build a, uh, well, I'd say an empire really. I mean, that's how I look at things. Like someday there's going to be, you know, world domination, or as I like to say, world domination. And you can be part of that movement or not. And I'll find out who you are. So, Quit threatening the listeners, Tom. Damn it. <laughs> so, so it, it, well, you can only threaten so many times. Like, we're up to, like, 36 people now. So, I, I, you know, whatever it is, I don't remember. I do know this, that our listeners in Oklahoma and Mississippi aren't going to help us out. So, yeah. no, They're going to revolt against you, thanks. Uh, but, you know, Tom, I do think we got some interesting episodes coming up um, in the pipes that I think are going to be great for everybody to listen to. Hell, I even got some ideas I haven't talked to you about yet. So who knows what may be coming up in the near future? Mm, intrigue. <laughs> Ooh, if, I had, if I had a mind.
monocle and a top hat. That would have been awesome. <laughs> Do you have anything else to add to this episode? Um, I know it was a lot of information, but hopefully we broke it down in a way that you're going to get some useful information out of it. And it's one of those topics that it's hard to digest or it's hard to get into. Hopefully we made it a little easier to listen to, and hopefully you actually learned something out of it. Yeah, and it's not something that I don't think that we cover a whole lot in school for advanced practitioners. And so that's kind of why we wanted to do this episode, because it has probably been one of our more requested episodes was, hey, can you tell us more about billing? What the hell? How the hell do we determine what we need to do? So get hold of us. We can send you that document that we were referring to tonight. I don't have a problem with that. If you have any questions on RVUs, shoot us an email, shoot us a message, let us know. Otherwise, man, I'm ready to wrap this episode up. Yeah, me too. (laughs) It just sounds melancholy. Anyway, (laughs) this is what happens whenever you get down in the sewers. What happens when what? This is what happens when you get down in the sewers. Oh, yeah. We don't find any damn turtles either. But had we do, had we found a teenage mutant ninja turtle down here in the sewer of medical billing, uh, there is a code for bit by turtle. I'm sure there is, and I'm sure it's going to be a W. There's going to be a W code in there. It's probably a good bet. Yeah. Anyway, let's wrap this episode up. We've went way long tonight, but it was lots of good info. So this has been. Have a wonderful week. This is Tom. Stay cool. So Tom and I were just talking post-production of uh, this episode, and I think we've decided what topic we're going to do next week, right, Tom? Alcohol, motherfuckers. <laughs> you get it to be a bit more specific. So not only are we going to cover alcohol, we're going to cover the effects of alcohol on the body, alcohol intoxication, alcohol poisoning, what alcohol does to your liver. Oh, but what, Tom, what's that other caveat that we're going to have uh, I'm going to be drunk. Well, I should say I'm. We. We are going to be drunk while we're recording the episode. We figured, when do people drink the most? Christmas and New Year's Eve. So we want to teach you about what your patients are going to be going through or what they're going to have happening inside their body. And what better way to do that than to be drunk as shit ourselves? That's right. So tune in next week, the drunk episode, the alcohol episode. You get to hear us a little schnockered. Who the hell knows what we're going to say? Yeah, you can hear what I'm saying now, and I'm completely sober. I, I haven't had a drop of alcohol in months, so it should be pretty interesting. Poor Kyle and his sound editing. He he, I, he may just go full bore with this one. I don't know what's going to happen. Sam the fact checker may walk out. Somebody's going to be hitting on Audra the cue card girl, so... <laughs> It's it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun and exciting time for everybody. That's right. So make sure you tune in next week, right before Christmas. We're gonna do the drunk episode. Yeah, I don't even know why we're we're gonna say it's about alcohol, but it's the drunk episode. <laughs> All right, tune in next week.